this is Pastor Nate Ward with Open Door Church, and I wanted to take a moment to welcome you to our podcast. It's my personal prayer that you would be encouraged and encountered by the Holy Spirit and challenged by His Word. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. Has anybody here ever complained to God? Um, I, I don't know if, if you guys make a habit of this, but unfortunately, sometimes I can be quite naive, and uh, I, I find myself in, in positions sometimes uh, offering up God advice on how he should handle situations, um, and most of the time, all of the time, actually, um, it's pretty bad advice because uh, thankfully, I'm not God and he is, but um, there are times when I find myself in that situation and and because I am pretty broken and I'm pretty stupid a lot of the times, uh, I can get the roles reversed and try to advise God on how to do his job. Um, and I don't know, maybe you've been there. Maybe you've been in a position where you thought you knew better than God and uh, you tried to instruct him on what or how something should happen. And I know on paper we would all say like, no, we would never do that, right? Like if we were, if we were like filling out a questionnaire, we know that that's wrong. It, I make it sound silly when I present it that way, but a lot of the times in everyday life as we're just walking through this thing of faith, um, it's easy for us to kind of get the roles reversed. And I, I was uh, recently just uh, kind of complaining to God somewhat like Job probably did, like, God, why are things so hard? Why do you have me going through this right now? Why can't we find, thank you, Adam, for leading worship this morning in Shelby. You guys were awesome, and that was such a treat for us. But why can't we find a worship leader? Why can't we staff a ministry here? Does nobody love Jesus enough to show up to church on Sunday morning? Like, <laughs> these, these complaints that I have uh, with God and just... Really, he puts them into perspective and he puts them into scope for me that they can be kind of silly. Anyway, in one of these, uh, in one of these uh, complaining sessions <laughs> that I had with the Lord and he was working on my heart and he was kind of doing surgery, he led me to John chapter 9. John chapter 9 tells this story of a man that was born blind. The disciples ask him, well, is he blind because he sinned or is his parents sinned? And Jesus said, neither. It's so that the power of God could be demonstrated through him. And uh, Jesus proceeds on to the scene and uh, he, he comes up to this man and he spits in the dirt and he makes mud and he puts the mud on the guy's eyes and he tells him to go bathe in the pool of Siloam, which means sending, and then, uh, then he'll see. And this whole story is just kind of bizarre, right? And when you, when you think about it, because we, we believe that Jesus is powerful, right? He healed other blind people. He did other miracles. He didn't have to spit in the mud, did he? Did he, did he, have, to, did he have to get down uh, in the dirt and make a mud paste with his own saliva and put it on this guy's eyes to heal him? The answer is no. <laughs> he didn't have to. Imagine being a blind guy. Like, we all know that, like, that sound when somebody's, like, getting ready to hawk a loogie. My son makes that sound sometimes, and it's, like, terrifying, right? It's, like, <sighs> and, like, it's disgusting, right? And can you just picture, like, being a blind guy, and you're, you're like, Jesus is here? Okay, he's going to heal me. He's going to, I mean, he's just going to say Shazam or something like that, and boom, I'm going to see. All of a sudden, you hear him, like, get, like, 
rallying up to Hakalugi, right? That's disgusting. It's okay. You could say that that's disgusting. I, I, I bet you Jesus would even associate the fact that, yeah, it's probably pretty gross. It's pretty disgusting. And I want us to take away this truth is that, you know, Jesus didn't have to do it that way, but I believe he was intentional about uh, make maybe these extra little steps that he was adding to it because he wanted to gauge the state of this man's heart. Because it would have been easy for this man to grow offended at what Jesus was doing in the moment, and he could have missed out on his miracle. Because, you know, he could say, you know, I know that Jesus could do this differently, um, I don't want him to do it this way. And the Lord places some responsibility on this guy to follow through on what Jesus had initially begun, right? I believe this is true for us, especially, um, at least for me in this season of life, this season of ministry, the the season of ministry as the church, is that we can have an expectation of how God should do something. And I believe that he loves shattering our expectations I believe he loves breaking down our preconceived notions and doing things differently than we expect him to do it just to gauge our heart, just to see if our hearts are really aligned with his. And so here in this moment, we, we see this, uh, this kind of crazy story come to this fruition. I'm so thankful that this guy didn't uh, have this kind of uh, offended spirit about himself that, why would you spit in my eye? Jesus did some other things where like, he stuck fingers and ears and all this fun stuff. I mean, he's Jesus. He didn't have to do them these way, this way. But I believe he does so intentionally, um, almost as a teaching thing. And I believe it comes from a place that we need to guard ourselves from pride, from the notion that we might know better than God or that we could do things better than he can. Because at the end of the day, right, this man was the one with the issue. This man was the one that was born blind. This man was the one that had something wrong and needed something from God. And he was in no place to tell God how to do it. But it's so easy for us when we are in a place of need, when we're in a place of hurt, when we're in a place of brokenness, to tell God how to do what we need him to do. And uh, my my message this morning comes um, from a place of brokenness, comes from a place of... um, of the Lord healing my heart on me trying to tell him how to do his job. And I want to encourage you today that uh, we need to be cautious of not growing offended in the midst of the process of God delivering his people, of God doing something powerful, of God moving in our midst. Um, I want us to be guarded against offense or guarded against discouragement because it's a very real place where the enemy would like to try to attack us, is in the season of God doing something big, in the season of God bringing forth breakthrough, of bringing forth the miraculous. I believe it's the place that uh, pride will rear its head. I believe it's the place that the enemy would subtly like to come in and discourage and distract us. And it's in that place that I believe we need to be guarded. So with that being said, we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 5 this morning. So the Lord was stirring my heart just with this story, and he brought to remembrance a, a pretty similar occurrence that takes place in the Old Testament. And uh, it's, uh, it's the story of Naaman 
the leper. And there's so much that I was receiving from the Lord in studying this one basic chapter of Scripture this last week that I I was compiling notes and I was compiling things that the Lord and the Holy Spirit were just showing me. And I, I got to the place where I realized I have way too much information for a sermon on a Sunday morning. Uh, I have I have so many different things that he he showed me and was kind of bringing out this truth. So I had to deliberately sit down with the Lord and ask him, what specifically do you want me to hit on in regards to Naaman today? And I believe that he gave me material for some other sermons, and I'm excited to get into those. So if uh, if you see something in this particular passage of scripture and you wonder why I'm not talking about it right now, or why I'm not connecting those dots, um, it's because uh, I believe there's more coming forth um, from just what the Lord had uh, begun to steer, steer, not steer, stir, that was right, uh, in my heart this last week. And so for the sake of simplicity, I'm going to break up this uh, portion of scripture in Second Kings chapter 5 into three Um, main sections. The first main section is going to be the introduction of our kind of main characters in this story. And uh, I'm excited to look at a contrast of the nature of these characters that we'll read about here in 2 Kings chapter 5. The second part that we're going to um, look at is the king and the prophet's interaction. And the last thing that we'll get to is actually the cleansing of Naaman the leper, and uh, just the truth that is prevalent there for us today. I'm going to read um, 2 Kings chapter 5, uh, and so I would ask that you guys follow along, and we're going to jump into this. It's going to be good. Amen? Amen. Cool. The king of Aram, or you might have in your scripture the king of Syria, they're interchangeable, they're the same region, had great admiration for Naaman the commander of his army, because through him the Lord had given Aram great victories. But though Naaman was a mighty warrior, he suffered from leprosy. At this time, Aramean raiders had invaded the land of Israel, and among their captives was a young girl who had been given to Naaman's wife as a maid. One day the girl said to her mistress, I wish my master would go see the prophet in Samaria. He would heal him of his leprosy. So Naaman told the king what the young girl from Israel had said. Go and visit the prophet, the king of Aram told him. I will send a letter of introduction for you to take to the king of Israel. So Naaman started out carrying as gifts 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. Like at, at the beginning, let's just, let's just break this down real quick. That's a lot of gold and silver. And uh, the clothing seems kind of like, why did you have that? add that in there? Like 10 outfits? That's, that doesn't seem like a big deal in comparison to 750 pounds of silver, right? Or 150 pounds of gold. These, were, uh, these garments were pretty extravagant. They were royal garments. The reason why I'm pausing here just to, to kind of put something into perspective with you, conservative estimates, and this was as late as 1990, as far as the, the, like the most conservative recent element or estimation of this kind of currency would have been, was $1.2 to $2 million worth of gold and silver and clothes here in this, uh, in this scenario. So it wasn't just like, oh man, I'm sending him with like 50 bucks to go see the pharmacist or something like this. 
This is a, a crazy caravan worth millions of dollars. So regardless of currency, regardless of any, anywhere in life or however you want to kind of play exchange rates, this was a massive amount of money and was an extremely generous um, uh, kind of uh, uh, care package or whatever you want to say that, that he was bringing with him. It's important as we go on in the story. And so all this money... And then it says, the letter to the king of Israel said, with this letter, I present you my servant Naaman. I want you to heal him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes in dismay and said, this man sends me a leper to heal. Am I God that I can give life and take it away? I can see that he's just trying to pick a fight with me. But when Elijah, the man of God, heard the king of Israel had torn his clothes in dismay, he sent this message to him. Why are you so upset? Send Naaman to me, and he will learn that there is a true prophet here in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and waited at the door of Elijah's house. But Elijah sent out a messenger to him with this message. Go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River. Then your skin will be restored, and you will be healed of your leprosy. But Naaman became angry and stalked away. I thought he would certainly come out to meet me, he said. I expected him to wave his hand over the leprosy and call on the name of the Lord his God and heal me. Aren't the rivers of Damascus, the Abana, and the Farfar, the Farpar, better than any of the rivers of Israel? Why shouldn't I wash in them and be healed? So Naaman turned and went away in a rage. But his officers tried to reason with him and said, Sir, if the prophet had told you to do something very difficult, wouldn't you have done it? So, should, so you should certainly obey him when he says simply go and wash and be cured. So Naaman went down to the Jordan River and dipped himself seven times. The man of God instructed him, and his skin became as healthy as the skin of a young child's, and he was healed. The story goes on to he comes back to Elijah's house and he recognizes that the Lord, the God of Israel, is the one true God. And in a very kind of display of a, a recent convert, he asks that uh, uh, if he could take two like truckloads or mule loads of earth back to worship the God of Israel back uh, in um, Samaria there. It's, it's just very unique. Um, Elijah refuses Elijah. S-H, refuses the gift um, that he has brought, said that, it's, that it's, this isn't something that you can buy. Keep your money, uh, keep your wealth, and just know that the Lord, he is God, essentially. Um, there's some more depth to that scenario that we're going to save for a different day, and I'm really excited to, when we get there. But we see this story broken down into some interesting um, parts. I want to begin with just a contrast of characters uh, here at the very beginning and in the introduction of uh, these first few uh, verses of this chapter. We get introduced to Naaman first, right? Naaman is this mighty man of valor, as some translations put it. He's the only Gentile in the entirety old in the entirety of the Old Testament that has been ascribed this kind of uh, this kind of description, uh, right? We remember Gideon. We remember a lot of the judges uh, through the Old Testament had this kind of uh, this terminology that was associated with him as a mighty man of war, David's fighting men. But uh, it's interesting to note that this was 
described of Naaman, who would have actually been an enemy of Israel. I need you to understand here, so Aram, Syria, they're the same nation here. Um, They were in consistent war with Israel throughout almost the entirety of the Old Testament. In fact, just a few chapters prior at the end of 1 Kings, um, it's Syria, it's 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 um, Aram here, that actually defeats Israel in battle. And you see Ahab is actually killed on the battlefield. He's King Ahab. He was a wicked king, but he was still the king of Israel that was uh, killed on the battlefield. And rabbinic tradition and extra-biblical kind of uh, resources actually um, label Naaman as the one that would have fired the arrow that killed King Ahab. And so even in this story, we see that they're carrying out raids on these small outlying Israeli towns and capturing servants for Syria. That's, that's actually an important aspect of this story. And it, I need you to understand this. So this isn't like, a, this isn't like one of the Lord's like favored uh, people in uh, Israel. It's not like he's one of God's chosen people when I, when, I, when, I, when I say it like that. This is actually someone that's an enemy of Israel. It's an enemy of the people of God. He's actively enslaving and entrapping them. He's the military commander. He's like the highest ranking military commander of the king of Israel. Um, not of the king of Israel. What? That didn't make any sense. But he's a high-ranking military commander of, for the king of Syria here. So to kind of put it into perspective and not to get weird, it's not like a replacement theology, but just for an illustration purpose, um, it would kind of be like the equivalent of the United States and, um, and uh, somebody that we were at war with, let's say, you know, with the war on terror with Afghanistan, or we'll even use Iraq for an example, back in the day when we were in full blood, like full on war with them, it'd be like the equivalent of Saddam Hussein sending his top general, right, to, to the United States to receive some medical treatment. Um, that that's kind of the the situation. I mean, it's really bizarre when you break down the historical context of what was taking place. Um, and so here we have the enemy of the people of God, an enemy that someone that has been blatantly. Um, really attacking Israel and Judah and has set themselves up in the place of war um, that we're seeing the mercy and the kindness of God extended to. And so this is, this is a beautiful picture. This is a beautiful portrayal, uh, portrayal of how the gospel um, is extended to mankind, to those that were far from God, to those of us that were labeled as enemies of God, right? It's Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's how he demonstrated his love for us. And I need you to understand um, this, is a, this is a picture of a loving God, of a kind God, of a God that brings healing, especially to those that do not deserve it. And so you have Naaman here, an, an enemy of God, an enemy of the people of God, a commander of the army of Syria. He was a man of nobility. He was high-ranking. He was like second in charge. He had people under him that commanded hundreds and people under him that commanded others. I, I mean, he was the man. He was used to people responding to him in, in, a, in a nobilic way. I don't know if that's a word. I just made that up. But um, <laughs> 
he was the guy that was in charge. He was important stuff. He had some clout about him. He had experience and tasted success, right? He, he was victorious uh, basically everywhere he went. He was so important to the king. The king said, I'll do whatever I can for you. I'll send you to Israel. Whatever, whatever there is, you're so important that we're going to make it happen. I'll send you with 1.2 or $2 million worth of gifts, and we're going to see this thing happen. He was an important guy. Now, I want to I wanna make note here. Uh, even in the midst of all of his importance, in the midst of all of his success and his stature, he was plagued with this disease of leprosy, Right? Now, leprosy, you have to understand, uh, there was no cure for it in the ancient world. Uh, ancient leprosy actually began as small little red dots on the skin, kind of like chicken pox. Um, and uh, before long, they would get bigger, and they would get bigger, and they would spread across the body. And then they would turn from these red chicken pox-like things into white, shiny, scaly um, spots on the skin that would eventually overtake the entirety of the body. And then the flesh would begin to rot away. At the joints, rot would begin to experience into your gums uh, to where you would literally decay. Body parts would begin to fall off. It was, a, it was a disease of the flesh, of the body. It would be your, your skin and your actual flesh eating away. I mean, it's, it's this crazy, um, horrific disease. And I have a way more kind of uh, in-depth description that I was going to read, but it's pretty graphic. You guys get the, the piece. Uh, you guys get what I'm talking about here. Um, with leprosy. And the, and the most important thing that you have to understand that there was no cure for leprosy. When, when you had leprosy, it was like you were being handed a death sentence in the most miserable way possible. There, there, there was no hope for you. You got, not only did you know that you were going to die, you would get uh, kind of shunned as an outcast of society in Jewish culture. This is different because he's not Jewish, right? This Naaman was important and he was a Sumerian. And so he had some clout behind it, but he still had this—he um, still had this problem that wasn't going to get better, and it wasn't going to go away. I don't know about you guys. Um, um, you guys ever have the check engine light come on in your car? <laughs> you guys ever just like maybe put like a piece of electrical tape over it so it disappears? <laughs> Not really fixing the problem. The problem's still there, and you just kind of hope that it gets better and goes away. I remember I had this, uh, this Honda Civic that would start making this clicking noise, and I would just pray that it would get better and go away. It didn't. It blew up, and it died. Um, <laughs> this is kind of the same, same thing that was going on in Naaman's life, that things were not going to get better. Things were not going to fix themselves, and there wasn't a person on the face of the earth that had a medical cure that could help Naaman's situation. And so for all the money that he had, for all the social clout that he had, for everything that he had going for him, he had one thing going against him that really nullified everything else, right? He was a leper. He was going to die, and it was going to be miserable, and it was going to be painful, and he was going to have to sit by and watch as his, as his limbs began to stop functioning and his fingers began to fall off. That was going to be bad news, right? So to put it into perspective, he didn't really have a lot going for him, did he? <laughs> I, 
I don't think there was probably anybody on the face of the earth outside of maybe another leper that was going to say, you know what, I want to change places with Naaman right now. <laughs> I mean, I, I can't think of anybody that, I, that would say, you know what, give me everything Naaman has, even if that includes his leprosy. Because it was a death sentence. It was an end. And there was nothing he could do about his condition. I want to compare and contrast the introduction of Naaman to the next character that we see here um, introduced in verse 3. But there's this slave girl, right? That Naaman, or that the, the Syrian army has actually captured from Israel and becomes a servant, becomes a maid, becomes a slave within his household and to uh, his wife. And there, there's, it's remarkable to me because she's unnamed. Seemingly of no importance, right? We have a slave girl here. We don't, scripture doesn't recount her name. It doesn't record it. But it's important that you understand that without her, Naaman would have never had her, Naaman would never had his victory. Without this seemingly small and insignificant um, person <laughs> and her willingness to be used by God in a situation she did not want to be in, Naaman would have never experienced his healing. And so what, what, I, what I would want to tell you is that you can never underestimate the power of your witness. And I want you to know that maybe you say, you know, I'm not a big shot. I don't have a lot going for me. I'm just a mom or I'm just a dad. I'm just working, trying to get by. I, I'm, I'm young. I'm inexperienced. Whatever it might be, I want you to know this, that I believe God uses those of less stature far more often than we think. And I believe he loves to use the lowly things of this world to shame the wise. And I'm thankful for that. And I never want you to diminish the role that you can play in altering the course of somebody's destiny just because of your circumstance or your situation. And in here, you, she was in a situation she did not want to be in, Correct? Right? Nobody woke up, no young, like, um, young Jewish girl was waking up in that day. You know what I would really like to do today? I think I would like to be captured by like, some Syrian marauders and be taken over to a foreign country and be forced into servitude for the rest of my life. Like, nobody was checking that box on things to do that day. Yet she was in that place. She was in a situation that she had zero control over. And I, I believe this. I want you to know that we talk a lot about this theology of suffering here. And I believe that God doesn't cause these things to happen. I believe uh, as a result of the human condition, things take place that are unfortunate, that are grieving, that are, are, are less than ideal circumstances here. But that doesn't mean he won't use a situation for his glory. Make sense? And so here in what is a, a really rough spot in life for this young girl, she's been dealt a pretty raw hand where she could have easily blamed God, where she could have easily kind of turned her back on him and any ounce of faith that she might have grown up in and given way and started worshiping the Syrian gods or, or just kind of trying to get by, we see her faith in the Lord remain steadfast. And so I, I just, I wrote this down that, you know, I feel like um, <laughs> for just such a small verse, such a small portion of scripture that she gets 
that probably most of us might be able to more readily identify with this young slave girl than with Naaman in this story and the fact that we might be in a situation we don't want to be in, that we feel like we have zero control over and zero say in, and we're trying to figure out how is God going to use me in the midst of this. I believe that in simple obedience, um, God can continue to stir compassion and faith in your life that can pave the way for him to move miraculously, not just in your situation, but in the circumstances and situations of others. Because I, I, I don't know. This is speculation here. Um, but I, I wonder what it probably looked like for this young slave girl when Naaman got back and he was cured. You know, we see Naaman have a real encounter with the Lord. And I wish that the rest of the story was recorded. And so there's just speculation there. But I couldn't imagine it have gotten worse for her after that. I'm not saying I, that's speculation. There's not, there's not a lot to go off of there, but um, we do see God using her in a miraculous way. And it was marked by a compassionate heart against her captor, <laughs> right? Against the guy that really caused all the destruction to come down upon her. And I believe that only happens when you have a relationship with the Lord and you're yielded to him. And I believe that if there's anybody that we should strive to be like throughout this story, it needs to be like this young slave girl, to be willing to be used where we're at, that God might receive glory in a circumstance where it's undeserved. Amen? We move on in the story. And so that's, that, that was a contrast of characters that we first see. And the, the next thing that we jump into is this kind of interesting, uh, this interesting encounter with the king of Israel, right? So this was King Jeroham. Um, there were actually two King Jerohams, um, and I might be butchering his name. Um, some of them, some translation calls him King Jorham. Um, but uh, there were two, there was, and they reigned simultaneously. There was a King Jorham in Israel, and there was a King Jorham in Judah, because it was a split kingdom at the time, and they reigned simultaneously. So it was, it's really confusing if you're looking at a map of the kings and like the chronological order, trying to figure out who's who. Um, anyway, this king was a particularly wicked king. He was a son of King Ahab, the one that was shot by Naaman. Um, <laughs> And uh, he, he, he attempted to, he didn't worship Baal, but he did worship other gods is what uh, Chronicles tells us about him. And he did still continue to lead the people in idolatry. And he had this very contentious relationship that was kind of back and forth with the prophet Elijah, where one moment they're kind of buddy and they're really good because Elijah's watching out for him. And then the next moment, because Elijah prophesies something harsh and it comes to pass that he's seeking out to have his head and have him executed. And so it's kind of this relational tension that goes back and forth. And uh, so here in this process, the reason why we see Elijah's response to the king here in such kind of a, a manner that almost seems like backhanded, they'll know there's a prophet in Israel, was because he wasn't actually welcomed in the king's palace. He wasn't, welcomed the, the, he wasn't welcomed in the place of authority, much like I believe culture uh, exists today where we'll have a political reign, right? Where we have a political system where the, the voice of the Lord is kind of withheld from influencing. And uh, I believe that if that's not a stark portrayal of what takes place um, in the nations and within our culture and with our political system. Um, anyway, 
Very quickly, we see the king here um, tearing his clothes and asking this question, am I God? What am I supposed to do with this? Surely they're just trying to set me up because when I can't heal Naaman here, which only God could do, right? At least he gets that little part right. Um, (laughs) Then they're going to say, well, you didn't heal the guy that has been causing me so much trouble. Like, it's really confusing when you think about it. Um, why didn't why didn't the king of Israel just go, like, off with his head, you know? Like, this would be a great military victory here. <laughs> Most scholars believe that this actually occurred um, in a relative time of peace, which makes some more sense. But in the very next following chapters, we see Assyria or Aram back uh, just in full force kind of... Uh, Sieging, uh, besieging Israel, and it's it's bad news. So very much an enemy. And um, anyway, so the king looks at it as a place of contention. I believe sometimes we can fall into the same kind of role and realm as the king of Israel here, where we refuse or we unknowingly um, kind of respond with this notion of just complete and utter um, uncertainty on what to do. See, the reason why Elijah rebukes the king is because he had full expectation that the king should know what to do when somebody comes to him with an issue like this. He got part of it right when he said, am I God? Can I bring life? Can I heal? And the answer to that is no, because it was never about you in the first place, king. They didn't come to you because he was seeking you to bring healing. He came to you because you're supposed to know who God is and the healing that he can bring. In fact, uh, so in Israel, um, there was the king, the priest, and the prophet, right? Those were the three kind of main hierarchical places within uh, the government or within the nation of Israel. And all three were supposed to be representative of God and his rule on the earth. That's why in Jesus we see him as the perfect king, priest, and prophet all in one that establishes over us today. But each one of those were supposed to be representative of the person of God to the nation of Israel. And so when, uh, (laughs) I love this, is that um, in verse 7 when he says, why have you torn your clothes? Elijah's responding with this question. Why are you having this reaction? It's kind of like he's saying, this is a crisis for you because you have no relationship with God. But it doesn't have to be a crisis. It's it's a needless crisis because you could have a relationship with God. And he says, well, send him to me and then at least he'll know that there's a prophet in Israel. Basically saying that there is a God still here. And uh, to me, I feel like it's so easy for us to kind of maybe be overwhelmed. I know for me as a pastor, I've had people... Um, come to me with issues and come to me with problems. And very early on, I had to learn that it's not about whether or not I can help somebody with their problem. It's not about whether or not I can help somebody with what they're walking through. It has to be the Lord that does it. And uh, here it was really a kind of a, a sharp criticism or a sharp rebuke that it's not about you, King. It's not about your position. It's not about what you say or what you can do. It's about who you know. And do you know the king? Do you know the God that can actually bring forth healing? And I see, I see it almost as kind of a, a backhand <laughs> uh, rebuke um, that the prophet gives the king here. That brings us to really kind of the, the crux of this passage. Is 
Naaman's actually he, actual healing that we read about here. But something interesting, did you know Leviticus chapter 14 in the Mosaic Law actually gives instructions on what is supposed to happen, the sacrifices that are supposed to be made, the offerings that are supposed to be presented before the priest when you're cleansed of leprosy? That's pretty, that's pretty intriguing to me that that actually exists in the Mosaic Law because in the entirety of the Old Testament, we have one occurrence of somebody actually being healed of leprosy, and he's not even a Jew. It's Naaman. Now, Jesus does walk through, uh, and there's healing of lepers within the New Testament with Jesus, but in the entirety of the Old Testament, we only have one example of somebody being healed or cleansed of leprosy, and that's Naaman. Like, that's, that's kind of like, I, I started thinking about, that can't be right, and so I had to study it, and it is. So why do we have a Mosaic law about if you're cleansed, if you're healed, this is what you're supposed to do? And the Lord really started to stir in me is that the healing, because there were other lepers, right, in Israel. Even Jesus references this in the New Testament when he's talking about Naaman here. That there were lepers, there were widows in Israel, weren't there? But yet he went to Samaria, <laughs> or that, that a Samarian was the one that received his healing. And so as much as there was provision, so there was, an, there was actually from the Lord an expectation that there would be healing that, takes, that took place for lepers. Yet we don't have an account for it. I, I don't know if there were. I mean, it's entirely speculative. But because we have accounts for the blind being healed and all this, all this other stuff, um, and the fact that we only have this one example of somebody that's not even a Jew to receive his healing, really kind of stirred in my heart that there was there was something that the people of, mis- of Israel were missing out on. And I want you to know that there has been provision made by the blood of Jesus. There has been provision made for your healing, for your salvation, for you to have right relationship with God. It has been set forth since the foundation of the earth that there has been a plan, that there has been a purpose for you to experience breakthrough, for you to experience the love of Jesus. And I, I believe that so many of us kind of have lived in a place of, of just almost experiencing it, but not. For whatever reason, whether it be fear, whether it be the work of the enemy, I believe that there is an expectation for God, that there is a plan for God for us to experience and live in in a real tangible encounter. And uh, I, I just so would hate to see any of you not experience what God has in store for your life. You see that Naaman's, Naaman had a preconceived idea of how God needed to move. And it almost cost him his miracle. Right? He said, well, surely, he, he shows up on the scene. And at first, he kind of gets, like, he gets the, the, like the cold shoulder from Elijah, right? You got this man of nobility. You've got this man that has come such a long distance. He's bringing extravagant gifts, and he shows up at Elijah's house outside of his doorstep. Elijah won't even answer the door to this man, right? This is a man that's used to people bowing down before him as he's walking through. Like the, he, he, he has the red carpet rolled out wherever he goes. He's a man of nobility, of stature, of clout. And you've, he shows up at the prophet's door, and he doesn't get he doesn't get a single ounce of recognition. The prophet won't even open the door to him. He, in fact, he actually sends out his servant Gehazi to deliver a message. It's like, 
You're no big deal. Whatever. Imagine kind of the if the sting that, that Naaman would have felt there, right? It would be a, a little bit of a hit on his ego, a little bit of a hit on his pride there, wouldn't it have been? And he gets this instruction to go bathe seven times in the Jordan River. And his response, you see Naaman's response, he's indignant about it. He says, I mean, couldn't he have at least come out? Surely he could have come out and he could have waved his hand over the leprous spot and it would have disappeared as he called upon the name of the the Lord his God. And aren't the rivers that we have back home so much nicer than the river here that they have in Israel? And it says that he leaves in a rage. He's upset with the solution that God's offering, right? And he almost misses out on it. It almost cost him his healing, both his physical healing and his spiritual healing of where he encounters the true and living God. And this is where it ties full circle with what I was talking about earlier, is that, guys, we have to be guarded. We have to be guarded from taking offense at the way that the Lord wants to move in our life. Because if he wants to use suffering to show us a better way, he'll use it. If he wants to use blessing, none of us ever, com- none of us ever complain about God when he really wants to bless us, right? <laughs> But maybe he'll have us do something that we don't want to do. Maybe he'll have you go someplace where you don't really want to go. Maybe he'll have you walk through something. Maybe he'll ask you to give up something that you really don't want to give up. Because he knows what's better and best for you. Because you have to understand this here, friends. It was never about Naaman's leprosy in this situation. His leprosy was a byproduct of a thing called sin. His leprosy was a byproduct of what was actually taking place internally in his heart. And it was a sense of pride that he had that was destroying him. And God was far more concerned about healing Naaman of his condition of pride than he was uh, this external thing of leprosy. Because if Elijah could have just come out and he waved his hand and he had his healing and he went off about on his way and he got what he was looking for, the condition of his heart would have never been dealt with. And Jesus is far more concerned about the condition of your heart than your external circumstance. And often we ask God to come into our situation. We ask him to come and deal with what we want, the, 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 the kind of the result of the sin or the result or the repercussions that we're dealing with, the things that are wrong in our life. But we never want to let him deal with our heart, right? We never want him to deal with the things that actually got us into the mess in the first place. And here, this story of Naaman, we talk about it like it's a story where God cleanses and heals a leper. I like to think of the story of Naaman as a a place of where God cleanses a man of his pride and heals the condition of his heart. And it's just kind of like a bonus on top that he gets cleansed of his leprosy, right? And friends, I I want you to know that that's what the Lord wants to do in your life. That's what the Lord wants to do in your heart. You might have everything going wrong right now, and he might just be permitting that to take place so he can grab hold of your heart. I'm not saying he causes it. I'm not saying that he's making it happen, but he'll permit it and he'll, he'll allow it if it can bring you closer to him and dependent on him. We have to guard ourselves from experiencing offense in the place where God's moving in a different direction than we think he should or how we want him to do it because he does know better. 
Because if Naaman would have got what he wanted, he would have still been in the same condition that he arrived in. Even if he went home, not a leper. But I believe something fundamentally changed in his heart. I believe something fundamentally changed in his life as a result of his simple obedience of doing something he didn't want to do, doing something that he was, thought was pretty stupid, right? He was probably plunging himself in the water, coming up. It's like, nope, not any better. Gets back down in. Fifth time, I told you guys this was stupid. It's not going to work, right? And he just keeps doing it anyway, right? Thank God he had some good friends that were about him, right? Where, where they approach him and they tell him, right, it, it's uh, <laughs> Naaman, if they would have asked you, if the prophet would have told you to do something impossibly difficult, you probably would have tried it, right? If he would have asked you to sacrifice a hundred bulls or a hundred cattle, something that cost you something, you would have done it. If it would have been difficult, if you could have laid some claim to it, if you could have actually put your name in that hat and said you had some part to play in it, you would have done it, wouldn't you, Naaman? But all he asked you to do was something simple. Just go take a bath. <laughs> and there, he's really saying, like, you don't have, <laughs> you don't have any other options, Naaman. You're a leper. You're going to die. You came all of this way and you're not even going to give it a shot. What do you have to lose? And I'm thankful that he responded to that, right? Aren't you, aren't you thankful that he actually got up and said, you know what? You're right. Either I'm going to stay in this same condition and it's going to get progressively worse regardless of what I do. Or maybe I can give what the Lord's asking me to do a shot. I've got nothing to lose. Friends, I need you to know this, that you have nothing to lose by jumping all into what the Lord has for you. And it might not be what you want it to be. <laughs> and it may not look like what you think it should look like because the Jordan was this nasty, muddy river, right? It wasn't this beautiful river like the Tigris or the Euphrates or the two rivers that I butchered their name of that were in Damascus. It wasn't like the river you go take a bath in and get clean, right? It was, it was kind of dirty. It was kind of messy. Are you willing, are you willing to let the Lord take you into play? maybe a situation you don't want to go into? Maybe into something that you don't think is the right idea? If it means that you could have your life forever changed. Hey Adam, can I invite you to come on up, man? While we were yet sinners, Christ demonstrated his love for us. Died for us. While we were enemies of God, while we were like Naaman, undeserved, really without anything of actual merit to us, we might have had a lot of social status, we might have had a lot of things going for us in terms of the world, but Maybe we had spiritual leprosy. It's this thing called sin. It's a flesh-eating disease that inevitably ends in death. 
There's nothing we can do about it. There's no healing that we can bring to it. We need a cleansing that we can't conjure up. And Jesus has paid that price. He has made that way available to us. And I, I, don't, know, I don't know your circumstance. I don't know your situation. I don't know what needs to change. But I want to encourage you this morning. What do you have to lose? What, you might look silly for a moment. You might look... Uh, sensitive to the Lord. I'm going to invite us to stand. I know I preach longer than I normally do, but I want to open up these altars. I don't know what you came in here with. I don't know what your struggle is. I don't know where you are with your walk with the Lord. But if you have stuff that you need Jesus to fix, (laughs) if you have things going wrong right now and you've been asking God, Lord, to bring some solution, I'm asking this morning that you might dig a little deeper than just what the, what the, the, the consequences and maybe of our actions might be that we see as the fruit of our labor. Ask him to deal with the root of it. In much the same way that I believe that the leprosy that Naaman was seeking cleansing for was actually just kind of the, the manifestation of the pride that was in his heart that the Lord really wanted to deal with. It wasn't something man could fix. It wasn't something that he could kind of go through a 12-step program and get better. He needed divine intervention. And so I'm going to invite you this morning. I don't know if maybe, maybe you have to give your life to Jesus for the first time. Maybe you're like Naaman in the, in the kind of the classical sense of this, this kind of picture of Jesus is that you know, you've been an enemy of God. You've, you've been distant. You've been broken. And you need Jesus to cleanse you of your sin. You want that new life with Jesus. I would respond to you, what do you have to lose? Can I tell you what I had to lose when I gave my life to Jesus? I didn't have to wind up living a life of, uh, of drug abuse that my parents did. Man, that's such a shame that I had to give that up, right? You know, I didn't have to, to have to wind up living a life dependent on a bottle. You know, I didn't have to stay addicted to pornography. All these things that, that really were holding me down, that's what I had to lose. And friends, it was so worth it. I guarantee you the only things that you have to lose when it comes to serving Jesus are things that aren't worth keeping anyway. 
So whether it's your first time wanting to, to respond to the Lord and giving your life to him, or whether you just simply have things that you need Jesus to deal with, I just want to encourage you that there's nothing for you to lose. We're going to open these altars and I'm going to pray and we'll dismiss. But if you, if you want to respond to the Holy Spirit, if you want to respond to what the Lord's doing and you'd like prayer for anything, I'm going to make myself available here. We'll, we'll have lunch and stuff whenever we get to it. If you're going to hang out and uh, meet with Adam and Shelby. But let's give the opportunity for the Lord to do what he wants to do. Amen. Father, I thank you that you've, you shared your word with me. Lord, I preached what you told me to preach. I shared what you asked me to share. Lord, I'm asking that hearts in this room right now would be tender to respond to you. Lord, that you would deal with any pride. Lord, that you would deal with any kind of sense of, of, uh, of they deserve you and they deserve better. Lord, uh, I'm asking that just in humility, Lord, that there would be a response, Lord, to, to come to you this morning, that you might move, that you might, you might have your way. Lord, I'm asking maybe for, for someone in this room that doesn't know you or hasn't served you faithfully, Lord, and they want to make that decision, <laughs> Lord, to, to be washed and be cleaned. Lord, by you and what you did and the price that you paid. Lord, I thank you that this was just an inferior picture of the price that you paid. Lord, the washing in the river, Lord, was such an inferior picture to, Lord, uh, your cleansing power of the blood of Jesus that you purchased with us on Calvary, that you purchased for us. We're just asking for your spirit to be present here. And receive glory in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's message. Our ministry is made possible entirely by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this message and would like to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, visit us online at www.opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give, see our service times, and stay connected with Open Door Church. We hope to see you soon.